That's, that's what it takes. Clean up your act. Now, no faithful teacher uh, that I know preaches that message, that that's what it means to accept or receive or believe this message. But it's easy to fall into that, that mode of, of thinking. I don't think that Paul here is describing, though, a moral reform program. He's not checking a box, and he's not encouraging us to pull ourselves up by our morally reforming bootstraps, so we need help. What does it mean when Paul says you've taken your stand on this, you've believed it, you've received it? For help, I want to turn back to the book of Acts, the book that we are now actually studying. So turn with me back to Acts chapter 2, if you would, please. Acts chapter 2. Um, Again, two books just to the left. If you come to the book of John, you've gone too far. Go back to uh, turn to your right. Now, let me set Acts 2 in context again. This is the third time we've looked at this uh, second chapter in the book. This is the day of the Pentecost. This is the day when the Lord Jesus, who is now risen and seated at God's right hand, poured out the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit coming into his followers, there were some signs, some significant signs, and Jews around them in Jerusalem looked at what was happening and said, what in the world does this mean? And Peter preaches this sermon. That's what we looked at last week. This long sermon where, well, it's actually only three minutes here. It was probably long. Well, mine was, but it, Peter's was probably longer than that too, where he says the coming of the Spirit and the, the, the signs that you see are evidence of the fact that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is reigning at God's right hand. He's seated at God's right hand. He's raised from the dead. He's exalted in heaven. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's good news. That's really good news. If you're, though, among those Jews in Jerusalem who participated in his crucifixion or gave approval to it, this is horrible news. After World War II, uh, the victorious allies engaged in a program in Germany that has the popular name denazification. That is, they wanted to remove from from German society and from the German army every element of Nazi philosophy and Nazi thinking. And one of the elements of denazification that the Allies used is they exposed the German public, who who many of whom were ignorant of this to some of the horrors of the Holocaust. It happened all the way throughout the years, 1945, 1946. Um, You can see there's documentation of this and how they did it. Uh, If you wanted to, you can find it at the the, um, uh, United States Holocaust Museum uh, website, or you could see it at the museum itself in D.C. There's a video of of this. I I could not show it to you. well, they decide, one of the plans is there's a town near one of the concentration camps and they invite the members of the town, residents of the town, to come and, and visit and tour the concentration camp. Um, at, at the beginning of the video, you can see that the, the Germans are leaving their town. They're well-dressed. It's a beautiful sunny day and they're smiling and they're happy as, this, as if they're going out for a picnic. And then they walk through the gates of the concentration camp. And the first thing that they see, one of the first things, is a long table, and on the table is a display of some of the things that happened at that concentration camp just a couple miles away. In fact, this table has a display of items made from human skin. Um, Jews that were um, uh, killed in the Holocaust, they would harvest their skin, and um, there was a lampshade, in fact, that was made of, of human skin. 
and human skin that had been turned into to leather and that drawings had been made on. And the Germans coming through, they, they see this table and you, you just can see how their expressions change. They're horrified by this. The, the tour continues and they go through uh, some of the gas chambers and they actually meet some of the people that are still there. Many of the prisoners had been liberated and gone somewhere, but there were still a few there and and you could see actually in, in one shot one of the prisoners and, and the Germans, the, the well-fed um, Germans in contrast to those in the concentration camp. And you see the changes that take place in the Germans and their, their expression, that they're horrified. People start weeping. Um, a couple of the, the women, they pass out. And as they leave, everybody, they just this horror at what was done by their country so close to their house. And as Peter preaches here in Acts chapter 2, this same feeling comes over this crowd as, as he talks about the Lord what, that they crucified. And, and they say to him in verse 37 of Acts 2, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do now? What do we do? And in the next several verses, Peter explains how they, how anyone really, should respond to the Jesus who died for your sins, who's raised again, and who is now exalted at God's right hand. And what I want you to see this morning is I want you to see Peter makes, he offers them two promises and he makes two commands. Those are the things that I want you to see. You'll be able to find them very easily. They, they, they float to the surface of, the, of this text. I, I just want to point them out to you. We're going to look at the promises first, although they come second in the text. Uh, so we'll look at the two promises and then the two commands. Here's the first promise. Promise number one, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 38. The crowd says, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, whole, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. There's a theme that's repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. The good news of the gospel focuses our attention on sin. Remember 1 Corinthians 15:3, Christ died for our sins. This is the great problem, sin and its consequences. Sin that invites the judgment of God. Look at what Isaiah 59 says. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. Sin separates us from God, and here's the great promise that the good news brings, forgiveness. Forgiveness means to alleviate or to remove a debt, to erase the rupture in a relationship. This should not surprise you, this need for forgiveness at all should not surprise you. <laughs> Imagine that you have a friend and every time you see this friend, she in some way manages to imply or insinuate into this discussion that you don't quite meet her standards. That she, every time you see her in some way, she just has this ability to make you feel ugly. 
or to imply that you're clumsy or to insinuate that you smell or that you're stupid. I, you, your friendship would suffer under those circumstances. In fact, um, it wouldn't last, I don't think. Sin at its heart communicates to God the Creator that He is not worth knowing, that He's not worth pursuing, that He's not worth obeying, that He's not worth trusting. In this context, these Jews have communicated to the God of heaven that they don't care about Him by crucifying their, His Son. And they are, as verse 40 says, part of a corrupt generation. Sin is the issue. We have to remember that. We have to keep that in mind. The Bible appeals to us on several different levels, doesn't it? When Jesus talks to people, he talks to them about a number of different things. In John chapter 3, he tells a very educated religious man, you must be born again. And, and in the midst of this, talking about this new life, he, he, he pokes and prods at this man's self-righteousness and his pomposity. In John chapter 4, he meets a woman at a well, and he doesn't talk to her about being born again. Jesus talks to her in John 4 about having living water. Oh, that sounds like good news. Living water. And she's interested in it. And then Jesus says, yeah, let's talk, though, as we consider this offer of living water, let's talk about where the, all the places that you've tried to go to get your thirst quenched. Let's talk for a minute about all those beds or all those men you've invited to your beds, bed trying to find satisfaction. I'm offering you living water. Here, Peter's just blunt about it. You have sinned and judgment is coming. I've heard a lot of preachers over the years and teachers call audiences to Jesus and sometimes I think what they do falls short of this clarity about sin. Jesus did not merely die to give you joy or peace. That's the appeal we make at Christmas time. If you want peace, you need Jesus. Jesus did not die merely to prove God's love to you. That's the appeal we make at Easter. Look how much God loves you. He died for you. Jesus did not die to make you happy. He didn't die to become your friend. He didn't die to relieve you from loneliness or anxiety or depression. He did not die to make you rich and healthy. He didn't die to improve your self-esteem, to fulfill your dreams. He died to provide forgiveness. Now through that, some of those blessings will undoubtedly come. But the central issue is the judgment of God that we face because we are in rebellion against him. Now seeing that here in the passage means that it's not that difficult to anticipate this second promise that's supposed to come. If the gospel, if the good news brings the forgiveness of sins, what else does it bring? Secondly, it brings the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Two promises in this passage, forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sin separates us from God. And once we've received forgiveness, we can be reconciled to him. And reconciliation it is to the extent that God actually dwells within us. Oh, it happens in Acts. Paul's going to explain it a lot in his letters but, but think about this here. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. They had daily visits with him. How marvelous that was. Then in the Gospels, Jesus came and he lived among us. He made his 
dwelling among us and was with us. Now the Spirit has come, and what does the Spirit do? He comes inside of us. This fellowship. This is a promise that, according to verse 39, is for all. This promise is for you, Jews in Jerusalem, are listening to me, your children, and for all who are far off. Probably in context, he's talking about Jews that are scattered throughout the world. But actually, as Acts unfolds, it's going to be everybody, Jews and Gentiles. This is a promise for anybody. And look at this little phrase at the end of verse 39. For all whom the Lord will call. Now, it's a little bit off the subject. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent for just a minute if I can. But notice here what, what Paul, uh, Peter says, God calls. Acts is a book that is not shy at all about the sovereignty of God. In verse 21 of Acts 2, we looked at this last week, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So people call on the name of the Lord. But verse 39, God calls on people. Again, Acts is not shy about talking about the sovereignty of God. In uh, Acts chapter uh, 13, we're going to get there in a few (laughs) years, Uh, Paul is um, preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and he says at the end, when he's done with his sermon, Luke says, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Oh, that is a severe and wonderful declaration of the sovereignty of God, sovereign grace. Acts is the most evangelistically driven book in the whole Bible, isn't it? I mean, these, these people are they're strategizing, they're working to share the gospel with everybody, they're calling on everybody they meet to respond to the gospel. And all the way through, Luke is not shy at any point in time talking about the fact that all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, Why are you a Christian? Is it because you have called on God or because God has called you? And you know the answer that I'm going to give to that question. The answer is yes. It's it's good to be a part of a congregation that's committed, on the one hand, to calling all people to believe, everyone, and at the same time, worshiping the God who is graciously sovereign in calling people. It's a very Acts-like church. Now, that's a bit of a tangent here. The promise is the Holy Spirit, and he is a great gift. One I fear that we, we take for granted often. Or doesn't, it doesn't sink in how significant this promise is. So that you can see and understand this, so you remember how significant this promise is, Luke records something for us in verse 41. Look what it says here, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Look at what the Holy Spirit does. In one day, through one sermon, he transforms 3,000 people. Um, Jesus had told the disciples, when the Spirit comes, you're going to do greater works than I do. And he was right, wasn't he? I mean, Jesus never had 3,000 converts. When Jesus died and was crucified and rose again, there were, what, 120 people gathered together who were faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit has come. 3,000 people are added to their number. There are numerical reports like this all the way through uh, the book of Acts. Um, They're kind of an outline of, of the book. Luke puts them here not because he's obsessed with numbers, 
but because Luke wants you to know how significant the Holy Spirit's working is. He works powerfully, effectively. Now, sometimes I hear, and I don't hear this very often, but sometimes I hear people say um, that they want to be a, a New Testament, part of a New Testament church, you know, a place where they know everyone and that it's comfortable and small and cozy. But this is actually the original New Testament church. 3,000 people. It's not problem-free, but somehow they still manage to care for one another like the New Testament says. This is mind-boggling to me. Could, can we care for one another, as the Bible encourages us to, if we had 400 people in our congregation? Could we do it if we had 600 people in our congregation? If our congregation had 3,120 members, could we care for one another as the New Testament enjoins? Um, apparently it's not impossible. This is the Spirit at work. Now, think about this here. If the Spirit can transform 3,000 people through this one sermon, can the Spirit help you? Is Peter's promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, is it worth it? If he can do this, can he help you withstand temptation this afternoon, this evening? If the Spirit can do this, can he actually help you cultivate patience at the end of the day with four children in your house who are suffering from midsummer boredom? Can he give you the courage to confront your growth group member? You know, he shared his testimony a few weeks ago, a few months ago in your growth group, and you see some of the same patterns that he said he'd overcome back in his life. Can the Spirit give you courage to go and talk to him about that? Can, can he help you forgive? Is the Spirit that, that powerful? If he can transform 3,000 people in one day through one sermon, can he work in your life? These are the promises that the gospel brings. Now, let's look at the commands here. Two of the commands. There's two of them in this passage. The first one is repent. Verse 38 uh, brothers, what shall we do? Here's the command. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what does the word repent mean? At its heart, the word repent means to change your mind, to change your mind, or perhaps more specifically, to change your attitude, to change your thinking. Um, I chose to go to, to college and to, to school in uh, very flat states. Well, there's hilly parts of Ohio and hilly parts of Texas, but where I was is very flat. Um, when you drive down the highway in Texas or these certain parts of Ohio, um, it, you could see laid out before you on the horizon everything that is involved in getting on and off of the highway, uh, which is wonderful if you're, you need gas. How hard is this going to be? You can see everything within five miles. So uh, you, you drive down the road. There it is. You can see the off-ramp that goes uh, up. You can see the bridge, the overpass. You can see the on-ramp that even comes down the other side, which is perfect because that's how you should think about repentance. Repentance is changing your direction. It's getting off, going over the overpass, and turning around and going back the other way. Changing, maybe you could use the word reorientation. Repentance is being reoriented, changing your thinking. 
Changing your mind. Now, the question is, changing your mind about what? Changing your thinking about what? I think the text indicates two things. Changing your mind, first of all, about sin, and changing your mind about Jesus. Repentance is changing your mind about what sin is and what sin does. As he preaches to this crowd, this crowd is cut to the heart. They, they are instantly uh, touched with regret and sorrow over what they, they're convicted about what they've done, specifically to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. They crucified him, and Peter's servant opens their minds, their eyes, to the horror of what they've done. They now see their sin in all of its ugliness. Repentance involves seeing sin in all of its ugliness. Uh, this week I, I spent some time doing some premarital counseling, or actually preparing for premarital counseling, and Dennis Rainey wrote something I thought was very helpful. He was writing about sexual intimacy in marriage. And he said that our culture is so awash in sexual confusion and sexual uh, information, and, and it, it stares us all over the place in our face, he says one of the great challenges in cultivating healthy sexual intimacy in a marriage is that you have to unlearn a lot of what you have already learned. You already, just by living in this culture, have learned so many erring, errant things. You've got to unlearn a lot of it. And, and repentance about sin is a process of unlearning. The Jews needed to unlearn what they thought they knew about sin. They thought that when they crucified Jesus, they were doing the right thing, and now they see it was completely wrong. Eve in the garden, right? She walks up to the fruit that God had said not to eat from, and, and she says, wow, that looks good. It's going to make me smart. It's going to taste really good. This is going to be good. Repentance, though, is having your eyes open to the fact that though it looks good, it is ugly at its heart. Uh, the, the, the practice of medicine has changed dramatically over time. You probably know this. If you had, oh, 500 years ago, if you had cut your arm and had a very severe cut in your arm, one of the things that they would do to treat you in some places is that they would put fresh dung animal dung on your arm. They thought it was good for you. <laughs> good to grow bacteria, right? We, now, we look back at this and go, what were we thinking? It obviously cannot be right. I'm reading right now a book about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and how he responded to polio. And one of the things that Roosevelt struggled with is that at certain points and when you have the disease in the recovery process, exercise, working out, is actually bad for you. It's totally counterintuitive. But that's the way that polio is and the way that polio works. You need to understand, uh, Roosevelt, what this exercise really is. and what, what you, There's a difference between what you think it will do and what it actually does and is. We have this natural disorientation towards sin. That disorientation actually is, is most evident in people who struggle with what we call addictive sins. I'm not sure that's the best word for it, but these sins that we repeat over and over again. If you talk to somebody that we would identify as an addict about their drinking or about their drug or about their uh, persistent pornography use, um, at moments they will say to you, 
yeah, I know this isn't good for me, but I just need it right now. Right now, if I just drink a little bit, look a little bit, swallow a little bit, shoot up a little bit, I'll feel so much better. It'll just give me the peace that I need right now. That it, it will help me. It will, it, will, it will satisfy me. It will enable me to deal with the other challenges that I have in my life. Isn't that the lie of addictive sin? Now, the repentance, though, that, that Peter is calling them for is not just clarity about their sin. It's the clarity about Jesus, this new view of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is both Lord and Messiah. Many people have some idea about who Jesus is. He's a great teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a rabbi. He's a guru. But repentance, the repentance that saves, means turning to him as Savior, the one who's seated at God's right hand, who's to be treasured and valued and worshipped and adored. Repentance here is to appropriate Jesus as our Savior and sin-bearer. You see both of those things in that passage that, that uh, Ryan read a little bit ago, how the Thessalonians turned from their idols that they thought were satisfying to Jesus, the one who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. Now, I think that in, in, if we understand this passage uh, and this word repent, we see that in the New Testament, repent functions kind of like a synonym for these other words. Peter uses the word call in verse 21. Repentance is like calling on Jesus the Savior to rescue us. Jesus, help me. In verse 41, Luke uses the word accept. You see, those who accepted his message. We accept, we receive the Holy Spirit, the Lord as Savior. 1 Corinthians 15:3, we believe, that is, we rely, we trust in him. Now, here, I think, is where we can fall into some of the errors of our thinking. Um, Repentance is not merely checking the Jesus box and moving on with your life as if nothing were different. How can you change your mind about uh, who Jesus is and not be different? Repentance always has in it, uh, always results in some sort of life change. Repentance, faith, acceptance, Belief that always result in some sort of life change. But saving repentance is not merely a promise of moral reform. I'm going to fix my life. See, I don't think that you should try to separate this new mindset about sin from this new mindset about Jesus. I don't think you can separate the two of them. Now, on the one hand, I know that repentance from sin alone does not save you. There are people who, who, who come to the point where they realize that what they do is, is terrible. Everybody, I think at some point in time, everybody, it doesn't matter what you, word you use, if you use the word sin or not, everybody comes to a point in time where they recognize that the behaviors that they're doing, whether they call them mistakes or, or uh, failures or uh, goof-ups, everybody recognizes that they're, they introduce pain and disaster into life. Even Oprah believed this, right? I mean, everybody believes this. At some point in, in time. Uh, but, but Peter is introducing them to the Jesus who is the Lord and Messiah. And he's saying you need to turn to him as your savior. 
And you need to know about sin because you turn to him as the one who saves you from your sin. How do you know that Jesus is a great savior unless you know what he's rescuing you from? So, so you can't separate these two, but we must recognize that we turn to Jesus. He is our hope. Feeling bad for your sin does not save. Jesus saves. He rescues. And though repentance, belief, faith results in a changing life, no one will be accepted into God's presence because of their changing life. Every one of us will stand before God and say, no merit of my own has anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love in Christ received. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting light and life he freely gives. See, our hope is, my, my prayer for you is that this deep conviction and this confident belief that Jesus is my Savior would be the confident belief of every person who's a part of our church. Regardless of how old you are, regardless how long you've been here, um, every Sunday, every Sunday we pray that those who come, the light would turn on. For those who, who don't understand this, that they would come and, and see and say, Ah, now I understand. Christ is the one who saves. Christ is the one who paid the penalty for my sin. Christ is the one who satisfies the Father for me in my place. Every Sunday we want that to happen. That there would be the day that, that you, whoever you are, would, uh, whether you're a member or visitor or regular attender, someone who has not yet seen Christ as the all-sufficient Savior would turn to him in confident dependence, confident trust, And God promises for those who believe forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that you might turn to him. Repent is the first command. Now, the second command here in this passage is be baptized. Be baptized. Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist had preached a similar message, didn't he? He had preached... To, be repent, to repent and to be baptized. And this would have been a great challenge for these Jewish followers, uh, Jewish hearers in Jerusalem. Um, they, they understood about baptism. They practiced baptism. In fact, all around Jerusalem there were large pools where if you were going to go worship in the temple, it would be very common for you to immerse yourself in these large pools as part of the ritual of going to the temple to worship. So they'd be familiar with baptism, with immersion. But here, Peter is telling them two things. One, you've got to be baptized by somebody else. And you have to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, with a public acclaim of loyalty to someone else, to him. Now, what challenges us about this verse is this relationship between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. We have this word for again here, don't we? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what does that word for mean? Um, Let me give you three suggestions. The first one I don't think accords with the rest of the New Testament. The other two you can believe. I'll tell you which one I prefer. 
Now, the word for here could mean that baptism causes forgiveness. It could mean that. That's a common way we use the word for, doesn't it? Um, That's the idea. To be truly forgiven, you must be baptized. Now, if we were all going to be theologically precise, uh, we would call this baptismal regeneration. That is, being baptized gives you new life. To be born again, you have to be baptized. There are some denominations that believe this. Uh, The largest one in the United States is the Church of Christ, not the United Church of Christ, but the Church of Christ. Uh, There are a lot of Church of Christ churches in the South. I had a friend who was a member of a Church of Christ church, and she had a T-shirt, her denominational T-shirt she would wear every now and then, and it had emblazoned on it Acts 2.38. Now, the problem with that view is that it contradicts the rest of the New Testament. Um, Flip over with me to Acts 3.19. Look at Acts 3.19. Peter, again, is preaching the gospel. And here he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. No mention here of baptism as a condition for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, my Church of Christ friend, again, had Acts 2.38 in her T-shirt. She did not have 1 Peter 3.21 printed on her T-shirt. Look what it says. Peter says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not, not getting in water, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Not the water. The water doesn't save to you, save you. Turning to him, believing him, does. So I don't think we can understand the word for as if baptism causes forgiveness. Here's another way that we could understand this word for. Acts 2.38 could mean that forgiveness causes baptism. Forgiveness causes baptism. Be baptized for you have been forgiven. We use that word for sometimes in our culture. Um, Let's imagine... Uh, men, that you come home from work and you have a, a beautiful rose and you give it to your bride and she says, oh, no, like, wives, you, you don't look at him and you say, what did you do now? No, that's not the appropriate response, okay? You look and you say, oh, they're beautiful. It's beautiful. What is this for? And you say, because I love you. I brought you this rose Because I love you. That's what it's for. The rose does not cause the love. The rose is because of the love. The love comes first, then the rose. And it could be that this word for here means that the forgiveness comes first and then the baptism. That's possible. Some of you might be most satisfied with that position. It's grammatically possible, but it's not, actually the grammar of that is not as common in the Bible as, as, it, as it could be. Here's a third way to understand this passage. I'm not sure you will like it as much, uh, but I think it's the best view. Here it is. Baptism accompanies forgiveness. Baptism accompanies the forgiveness. That is, the two of them go together. They are so closely associated that Peter links them here together without, at this point in the New Testament, thinking about their relationship or without being specific about their relationship. 
Peter knows the relationship between baptism and forgiveness, and I think his audience does, but in the unfolding of this story as we read, this is not the main point. Later, Peter is going to clarify. He writes in, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 3, again, baptism saves you, not the water part, but the faith. He will be theologically precise later. For now, he's just putting them together. The two of them should go together. Now, some of you might not like that ambiguity. Maybe this isn't the best illustration. Maybe not, but think about this with me. Um, have you ever been to, uh, 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 with a little child at a wedding? You know, one of those little child children who is at the stage of life where they ask questions about everything? I was that way until age eight. My parents never took me anywhere. So, um, but, but there you are, you're sitting through the ceremony and there's a little child and they turn to you and they say all the time, what are they doing now? Why are they lighting those candles? Why are they giving rings? What are they saying? Why are they talking to each other? Why are they kissing? Is that okay in church? Can you kiss like that? I don't think so. Now, you could explain all of those details during the ceremony to this child, but that's just not the time, Right? Shh, we'll talk about it later. Talk about it later. What if, what if that child asks you when the bride and groom are actually officially married? Are they officially married when they exchange vows, because marriage is a covenant? Or not until the rings? Or maybe it's when the pastor says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Or they are not officially married until the pastor says, uh, pronounces them, husband and wife. Uh, you could answer that question if you had to. But, but when you're at the wedding, right, just look. Just observe. Just delight in it all. Vows, candles, rings, pronouncement, kissing. It's all good. Analyze it later. This is what's happening here. Repentance, baptism, forgiveness, coming of the Holy Spirit. Analyze it later. Look at the beauty of it and think about the details, the theological details of it later. I think that's what, what's happening here. The New Testament knows uh, uh, later it will describe this relationship, that baptism is the sign, the outward sign of the inward faith. Baptism itself doesn't save, but they go together in the sense that baptism is the public announcement of the forgiveness of sins. That's why our Lord commanded it. You believe and then are baptized. It's what we do. Next week you're going to see four men be baptized and they're going to give their uh, testimony of faith and then be baptized. The New Testament knows very little of a believer who is not baptized. That would not make any sense to any of, of the apostles or, or Peter. The two go together. You believe and are baptized. There's, there's, huh, there's, there's no little uh, gentle way that I can say this. If you're a believer and you're not baptized, you are disobeying the Lord. There's no gentle way to say that. I'm not talking about little children. Um, I, I hope your little children know and I hope they have confidence that Jesus is the Savior. That should be true of them. That's excellent. I think there are wise reasons for that child to wait to be baptized. We can talk about that at another time. 
But if, if you're an adult, if you were to walk in the church in Jerusalem and say, yeah, I believe, I've been believing for three years, and Peter says to you, when were you baptized? Oh, so you've been baptized three years. And you would say, oh, no, I haven't been baptized yet. And Peter would say, what? Don't you know that baptism is supposed to go with forgiveness? The two of them, are, they, 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 they accompany one another. They, they match. The outward sign is supposed to happen with the inward faith. Peter would say, did someone not teach you that? <laughs> he would say, obviously you're not Baptist. That's what he would say. <laughs> now, recognize here um, what's happening. Peter is telling them that their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this reorienting belief, is meant to be a public affair. You're meant to go public with your faith. There are pools all around the temple. There were pools all around the temple in ancient Jerusalem. And this day, it's very possible that 3,000 people could be baptized. They would come to the public pools, and there in front of everybody, you would be baptized by one of those Galilean followers of Jesus, and you would be publicly testifying to your faith in the Lord Jesus, that you are committed to him. It should be known. This is the natural step of going public with your faith. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, people around you should know. Which, which makes me ask this question. How many of the people that you know know that you're a follower of Christ? How many of your neighbors know that you're a Christian? How many of your coworkers know that? How many of the, the people that you consider friends? How many of the people who are going to sit next to you next year in your biology class will know that you're a follower of, of Christ? Now, they might have some suspicions because of what you don't do, that you don't party like they do, or you don't sleep around like they do, you don't swear like they do, or whatever in your circles, uptight, goody-two-shoes people do. But how many of them know that the choices you're making, you make because you are positively a follower of Jesus? I, I want to finish. I'm almost done. I want, you to finish, I want to finish by asking you to consider something. This is a small thing in comparison to 3,000 people in one day becoming followers of Jesus. This is very one, one very small thing. Could you this week, is there one person this week in your life that you could communicate to your hope in Jesus and the difference that it makes? Is there one person this week in your life, um, maybe your mechanic, or the person who cuts your hair, or your neighbor, or one of your coworkers. Could you this week make your faith public to, to one additional person? It sounds so small, doesn't it, in, in comparison to 3,000. <laughs> Yet at the same time, it seems really big. Peter, Paul said, pray for me that I'll have courage and that I'll have an open door. Maybe you'll be praying that all, day, all week if you think about this. But it, this is what happens. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, their faith goes public. This is, this is uh, why Peter invites them into the water. Faith in Jesus Christ, whom God has made both Lord and Messiah, goes public. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you have given us rich words in your book to think about and to carefully consider. And we have uh, together thought about a lot of, of things. 
Uh, thank you for this truth about the forgiveness of sins and the clarity that you give. You tell us the truth about our condition before you, and we're thankful. We are also thankful to you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, we confess we tend to take him for granted or ignore or not value this great gift that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be clear when we think about what it means to turning to the Lord Jesus. He is our great Savior. We want to celebrate that and delight in that. He is our great Savior who rescues us from our ugly sin. Lord, give us clarity as we think and talk about this. And I do pray this week that you would give us all open doors and opportunities to let our faith in Christ be known. Maybe, Father, again, as I think to um, cousins that we'll see or, or the mail carrier, um, somebody in the grocery store, um, the guy next door who's grilling this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would open doors for us and that you would give us the courage to walk through them. It seems like such a small thing. You're seated, Lord Jesus, at God's right hand. What cause have we for fear? But we, we confess we need courage. So help us, help us. We are those who have turned to Jesus Christ. By your grace, let us make it known. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.